Welcome to Brain Health 365, the podcast focusing on innovative, holistic, and integrative approaches to brain health and healthy aging. Our host, Brian Brown, a national cognitive health expert, will discuss and interview top experts covering wide-ranging topics focusing on his 10 principles for brain health. We invite you to engage and join the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Brain Health 365. My name is Brian Brown, and I am the host of this podcast. Today's topic brings out a whole range of stressful emotions in a lot of people, and it's a topic of avoidance for many families. Today, we're talking about actively embracing our mortality and preparing to grow old. Our guest for this episode is Cameron Svensson. Cameron is a licensed clinical social worker with more than 25 years in the industry. Cameron is one of the founders of the Palliative Care Alliance and Faith Hospice. And as a corporate trainer and public speaker, Cameron has influenced healthcare audiences on many topics, including end of life issues, home care for senior, transitions in care, advanced care planning. And he's currently putting the finishing touches on a book centered on examining and overcoming the human fear of death and dying. So I'd like to welcome you, Cameron, to this episode. Thanks very much, Brian. I appreciate it. So this topic stirs up a lot of emotions, and we talk about brain health in general and things that help brain health. And this is a topic that really starts to undercut into stress. And we know stress is one of the issues that really affect people's brain health. But this topic of death, dying, and, and mortality stirs up all sorts of fear, denial, and anger. So give us a kind of a, a primer on why we get so stressed up, stressed out with these feelings of fear, denial, and anger when we start to talk about mortality and, and these types of issues. So this is something that's evolved over time, I think. Um, when, you, when you ask somebody what they're afraid of, you're going to get a lot of different answers, right? I mean, that people have phobias about a ton of things, but most of them come back to or have an underlying reason, and that is personal harm, injury, or death. And because of that, you have just a, a general unknown about how to combat that because death is not something that people have experienced. Most people, you know, of course, you get some people that say they've had a near-death experience and they come back and whatever that is, they explain it. But but for the most part, a majority of people haven't had that experience. And so if you think about what people are afraid of, most things can be solved if somebody has a fear, if they want to face the fear. Death, we're not sure about. And so there's a there's a great unknown there. And that's what stresses people out is the fact that it's unknown. And with something like that, you have a tendency to be out of control as a, as a person who's experiencing fear of something that isn't tangible. And so, you know, but what I what I like to do to, to get people to understand and to solve that fear and create less stress, reduce it is understand the fear better, face it, go through it, you know, and, and I take them through those steps to get them to the other side of understanding what it is that they're actually fearing. So now that we are um, in, in my talks and lectures, I talk about this aging continuum that we're 
longevity is there and, and aging has come up with with all these research advances and nutritional advances and and things along those lines. What does old age or aging look like in your opinion in 2021 in in terms of um, how we view this concept of preparing to go old, grow old. What is what is old these days? <laughs> well, you you tell me <laughs> what is old these days, right? Because when in 1900, okay, and and that's you know 120 years ago, but in 1900, the average lifespan was 50. 50. Yep. Yep. Like today, it's it's close to 80. And and you know, when you have a lifespan that, that averages 80, you've got to have people that are living longer in order to get that as your average. So I, I think what we're looking at today is, you know, what is old? I, I think from a from a 20-year-old a standpoint, they're going to go, well, 45 is pretty old. You know, you get that same 45-year-old and they'll say, well, no way am I old. You know, it's it's more like 65. And then you get the 65-year-old who's just retiring going, I got the rest of my life. Are you kidding? I'm not old yet. So I don't I don't know how we define that anymore, but I'm pretty sure it's not by a number. It can't be. Um, we just have we have too many things to do uh to address this this aging process in America. And I think to answer your question, the other part of the question, when you have physicians. We expect our physicians to kind of talk to us through these disease process, processes that we get as we go grow old, older, right? You've got chronic diseases that creep in, and we want answers to those. And, uh, and our doctors, they, they certainly need to continue to do a good job at, at explaining what, what's going to happen on the, on the decline. And, and really, as, as I um, around the country and talk to people, um, one of the real realities is something that you touched on earlier. And that is, we have this cohort of people who are just retiring now, who are moving into these age-restricted master plan communities and taking out 30-year mortgages, fully expecting to be alive at age 90, 95 in these, in these new homes, because the, the aging paradigm and the longevity boom has, has shown them, you know, we're not slowing down. And so, Again, no one's really addressing this topic that we're talking about because of this 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 absence of um, the thought process that at some point we're going to die, um, and that's a, that's a unique phenomenon coming from like you said where we we were in 1900 where average life expectancy is late 40s 50s. Um, so it's a it's a really different place to come from in terms of looking at our our mortality. Oh, it's fascinating. Absolutely. So, so go ahead. No, 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 please. Well, no, I, I, I have much more to say on that, that side of things, but I think I'll get to that um, here coming up. So yeah, let's continue with the, the, the question. So, so we, we talk about this whole, all of us, no one makes it off the planet alive, right? That's, that's a fact. Right. But we see this um, event of dying as just a medical event. And we try and avoid, like you said, this medical event of dying. And what you're trying to, to tell us is dying is more than just a medical event. There, there's more to it than just the medical aspects. And I think part of the fear that we have is this medical event of actually dying. So how, does, how, how, do, we, how do we square that? Well, I think 
first of all, we have to split this in two. There's two fears here when it comes to mortality. And that's the fear of death, which is not being. And then there's the fear of dying, which you just said is the process of transitioning out of life. And so we've got, if somebody has a fear, and there are a lot of people out there that say no fear, no fear of dying whatsoever. And they might have, you know, strong spiritual beliefs that help support this reduction in fear, or they might just simply say, when it's my time, it's my time. And they're not concerned at all. But I think, you know, if you, if you scale it back or peel back the layers of, of what fear consists of, it's not just you know, the fright that you have when you're watching a horror movie. And that's not the kind of fear that we're talking about. It's the paralyzing kind that, that comes from anxiety and apprehension and stress because you're not in control over this dying process, over this, over the, your lifespan, assuming that you don't die immediately in some kind of accident. Over the course of a lifespan, things change and, and, and these physical expectations that we have of our body suddenly aren't there anymore. That's the physical changes. But like, like you indicated, once you recognize that there's nothing you can do about the physical changes, you can just keep yourself in the best shape possible. Once you realize that there's also things cognitively that are going on and that then, you know, uh, impacts your emotional and psychological approach to your day or your life. And then there's a spiritual element to that as well that, that can creep in. If you don't actively address it, like, like actively engage in the process of this thing that we know as humankind being mortal, if we don't actively pursue some, some answers to those questions that are causing us so much anxiety, then we're doing ourselves and our families a disservice. And we, we can't expect to to pretend it's not real. And I know we live in the superhero genre world, you know, where we, we watch these video games and, and movies and TV shows. And subconsciously, there's just kind of this mythical version of death out there. Like, well, you know, that happens to other people, not me. I feel great. Yeah. Or, yeah. or there's even the, somebody's going to invent something. They're going to invent something someday where death is, we're going to stave that off or eliminate it completely. It's never going to happen. And we've done a lot of things and I don't like to say anything's impossible, but do we really want to live in a world of immortality? <laughs> that doesn't sound good to me. You know, um, cryogenics, all of those things that people are trying to uh, extend uh, um, into this immortal state, you see that popping up all over the place, like you said. Now, there is a kind of a rite of passage as we all get to certain ages. So there's, if you have an adolescent um, or child, there's the time that you have, quote, the talk about the birds or bees. There's a natural time for that. There's talks about, oh, you know, hey, you're coming of age and, you know, you're going to start drinking here real soon. And we're going to talk about that talk and so on and so forth. So when is the time to have the talk about death and dying? Oh, that's a great question. That's going to differ, of course, from person to person. So I don't think, you know, just like I'm not going to tell somebody else what to believe politically or how to believe religiously, I would not want them to just engage immediately with somebody who's barely got, you know, just the concept of what life is. That said, I think we, we don't analyze it or scrutinize it like we should in school, starting at a very early age. 
Um, I've said many times that, you know, kids know what death is the moment that they step on a bug or, you know, pull the wings off a butterfly and it dies or, you know, anything that, that you know, shooting a bird with a BB gun, which I, I did so uh, unfortunately as an eighth grader thinking, oh, I, you know, a target practice. And then I realized, wow, you know, I, I took a life, you know, and that didn't feel good to me. And I think that just understanding the life cycle, and that doesn't matter if it's the human life cycle, or if it's, if we're talking about animals or trees or anything that's living and anything that goes through the process of that change into dying, it's, it's really important to, to get that reflected early while it, while a child is making their neuronal connections about that topic. It's, it's crucial to be able to, to not just tell them what we've learned, but to field the questions that they have that are legitimate and, and profound. And we don't do that soon enough. So, so um, you're a dad and all of that. When did, when did you have that conversation or have you had that conversation um, with, your, with your kids? With my own kids? Yeah. I did. Um, and it was very early. Uh, as a as a father, I think you know if if anybody has kids out there, you kind of know that those conversations, and not certainly not just that one, but like you indicated, any of those birds and bees, and and potentially difficult first time conversations. Um, I had my conversation with my daughter early; she was four, when she, and it wasn't me walking up to her saying, "Hey, we got to get to know death, kid." This, <laughs> this was <laughs> this was her coming in and and asking me you know, coming up to me and saying, Hey, dad, well, she wasn't actually that excited, but she's, you know, Hey dad, did you hear that Michael Jackson is out of life? This is at four years old. She came up to me and asked us. And I said, yeah, I did hear that. And, and she said, are you going to be out of life someday? And I said, yeah, I am. And she said, am I going to be out of life someday? And, and that's, that's the moment that you realize, at least it was the moment that I realized that, that first of all, she's a curious kid. If she's going to ask these things, but, but the also then how do you support that? So that, that there's enough cognitive, rational, rational ability, as well as the emotional possibility of, of how she's going to intake that. Now, most kids realize they're kids, right? They, yep. they, they know that they're young. We've been telling them that they're young. D don't worry about that. You know, we'll, we'll handle all of the, you know, we take control over our kids the best that we can. And she thought, well, if I'm young and death is far away, what do I care? She wasn't thinking, you know, I could get in an accident or I could, you know, one of many ways that a child could, could inflict harm or have a harm inflicted on them. She wasn't thinking at it like that. She was just thinking, well, what happens to this bug? What happened to Michael Jackson? Where did these people go? Where, where does life go? And since then, she's 15 now, but we've had those conversations uh, more frequently. And specifically, as kids start to grow, potentially grandparents getting older and and dying, and and it starts a, a natural process of of these types of questions. And the more we avoid those, the more I think anxiety that you alluded to earlier that even younger people start to experience when they don't understand that um, the transition of death and and how that works, and um, is it just a medical event, et cetera, et cetera. So in essence. Because your expertise lies in, you know, end of life and everything like that. Is the system overall set up to fail us? Because I say this because a lot of times um, we go through a process where people work and their main 
aspiration is, do I have enough money for retirement? And so they go to their financial planners and they start this process so that they can continue to live at a good standard, one that they were used to living when they were working. And so that financial planner system, retirement system is set up and it's good, but is there a part of the system that is failing us in order to do more than prepare for our finances? So is the system overall set up to fail us in that capacity? Well, I, I think so. Uh, to me, if anybody listening here, if you think about who has come and sit, sat down and had the conversation with you, meaning the, the hard conversation of advanced care planning, um, you know, wishes toward care for yourself at end of life, or even harder, what what you need to say and how you need to say what you want to your loved ones. I mean, has anybody taught that? Is that a book out there or a class? I mean, I don't think it is. And, and so when you think about the system, if we're talking about the healthcare system, nobody, I, I don't know one single doctor other than a particular ER physician who's, who as a friend of mine, who actually does address those things as a person's coming into the hospital. Do you want aggressive treatment in a futile state or do you want to seek comfort care for the things that you have that are never going to be corrected? And where, where are these people along the continuum? And that's the, that's the number one problem we have. Look, I had a, just as a quick illustration, I was talking to a, a patient I was referred to by an oncologist. When an oncologist refers a patient to hospice, it's not good. And just generally speaking, it, it's yeah. last ditch effort stuff. And, 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 you know, if, if that on, if any oncologist sees what a person is going through and is recommending comfort care over aggressive treatment, chances are it's, it's close to the end. This particular person, patient, 98 years old. Now, I don't know, like I said in the beginning, age is, you know, whatever somebody wants it to be. Old is whatever somebody wants it to be. It could be 100, could be 122. It, it really, if that 98-year-old could tell anybody what they think old is. But I think if a 98-year-old has an end-stage illness, that maybe our system should be set up to really sit down and, and talk about this. And instead, this particular patient is going to seek a second opinion. And I, like I said, they have the right to do that. And maybe that is the right decision because everybody's at a different age. But generally speaking, a 98-year-old with, with end-stage cancer, I'm not sure how many other oncologists are going to say, yeah, let's take that on. And if they do, you know, shame on them. And that's where the system can really break down in, in terms of looking out for um, best interests of, of, of patients. Well, I think so. And, and, and to, to, to clarify, because I don't want anybody to think, to think that I just, you know, said 98-year-old's too old. I, I just want to say that if the, if the diagnoses of whatever illness is at its end stage and it's not curable, that we have to have a we have to do a better job of engaging that person in a conversation to overcome the anxiety that they might have so that if they do have things left to do they do that and they can feel good about doing that instead of thinking oh i i'm getting treatment that's going to extend my life you know we we just have to do, do a better job of giving both options to a patient talk to me about the the five wishes um that um, I've heard you uh, lecture on in the past, um, um, those five wishes that, uh, that are part of the conversation. 
um, which one being um, the person I want to make healthcare decisions for me. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I think if anybody out there knows the five wishes, it is a type of advanced directive, but it's the kind that is has it. It includes the language that is easy to talk about, easy to listen to, understandable. Instead of the, you know, attorney general advanced care directive, medical power of attorney, and living will, where it's a lot of stuff that is kind of old fashioned, in my opinion. Where it says, you know, in the event that I am deemed incurable or in an irreversible coma, I want care to be, you know, I want care to be offered to me that 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 definitely keeps me comfortable but not alive artificially. So if there's those kind of things that, that are very important to complete, but honestly, for most people, that's still so hypothetical. Like if I happen to have that, and if I've, like really, I, the, the truth of the matter is that most of the people aren't going to be in that area and that type of care, not that it doesn't need to be completed, it does, but let's keep going. The conversation needs to go deeper. And so the five wishes document does examine these things about what kind of care I want to be, you know, what, what does comfort care actually look like? What kind of music do I want playing toward the end of my life? What, what do I massage oil and, and physical efforts to keep me comfortable? Is that something that I want to have? And not everybody can have that, but, but being able to write these things down and define end of life care, as opposed to just having it defined for them, that's what the five wishes document allows and not just the designated medical power of attorney, but then all of the other things that, that constitute comfort care and then legacy. How do I want to be remembered? Who do I want to make sure that I include in conversation before the end comes so that they know how I feel about them or whatever. The, these are the, the really important questions that don't get answered or rather asked because they're not deemed medical questions. And so the way our system is set up right now is doctors aren't going to ask that. They're just going to hand a, a medical directive over and expect it to be done. So in, in my area of expertise, we're talking about cognitive health and, and dementia and Alzheimer's. We get into see similar discussions as people's cognition starts to wane. While they're in the early stages, we want to have these kind of conversations. We want to be able to, while they can, have a lot of legacy conversations, have a lot of conversations about at some point you may not have the capacity to, to remember or to make um, informed decisions. And so what do you want the people around you to know? Um, what do you want your loved ones to know about you, yourself, your, your life story, your sketch, and to actively start to have those discussions? We're still going to look for the best clinical trials, the best treatments so that we can, you know, slow the progression or, or, or potentially um, have a better result in this dementia continuum. But the inevitability of this disease marching on is a truth. And that is something that we, um, all of us as, as practitioners in this area, really have to, to do a better job educating people on these types of subjects towards the end of life. And, and like you said, get, get around the fear um, and the denial that takes place. And so let's talk about this whole aspects of death literacy. Um, I think people are death illiterate because based on the example that I said and the examples that you said, I really think 
that death literacy is a thing. And I know you're writing a book right now, you're in the finishing touches that really starts to address a lot of these, these subject matters. So, so give, give us a little bit of a primer of what drove you to, to write this book and kind of your overarching themes and goals in terms of really helping people grapple with this, this topic that all of us are gonna to have to face. But again, like we talked about in the beginning of our episode, we don't want any part of it. Right. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk just for a moment about that. I, I think it, it, this is a long time coming. You know, I'm, I'm 50, almost 52 years old, and I've been thinking and, and doing work in this area since I was, since I was 16 in, in some capacity with the senior population. So I've seen the lifespan of people. I've seen it for myself, and I'm ex I've examined it. I know what I want, and I know what people want. Now, getting them over the hurdle of, of the, the fear of death and die is different for everybody. But what I noticed is every, many times when I was going in, I had been asked to talk to a family. I, I was working for a hospice and I would go in and talk to the family and I'd, I'd get the people in a hospital room, let's say, the family members of the patient would, after my introduction, would push me right back out of the room and say, uh-uh, we're not there yet. And I'd, and I'd say, but... But the doctor has asked me to come talk to you now. It, it is time. I, I need to share this with you. And they'd say, fine, just don't say that word, hospice. And so I'd, be, I'd say, how am I going to do this? Here I am supposed to be talking about what the services are. And they're telling me that they don't want any part of it, completely dismissing the fact that this person is in the hospital, basically on their deathbed. And the question was going to be, do you want to die here or do you want to die at home or somewhere else comfortable? And, and what I know is that this should have been a discussion before it ever got to that point, but nobody did. At least it didn't appear in many times when I was talking to the family or the patient that anybody had ever uh, touched on this topic. So I, I, this book is all about examining the five fears of death, uh, the five main fears of death and dying or mortality, and being able to provide solutions. Because I think that the problem, as I said in the beginning, with death and dying is it's hypothetical. It's not tangible. We, we don't know exactly what we're fearing. And so we just don't, we don't deal with it. We don't talk about it. It's taboo. I mean, when's the last time you went to a, a party and, and, and started talking about death and dying? <laughs> There's usually not going to be the, uh, the kind of a response that you want and you get you get less popular as the night goes on right so it, you know you don't lead with that but it is profound and it is a necessary conversation topic so if you if, if we all lead with this isn't about death it's not about leaving people it's not about them leaving you this is about life and engaging actively in the the, the presence that you need to have from a day-to-day -day basis about this being something that is that is impermanent. And with impermanent can become beauty because you recognize that you don't have, you know, guaranteed time. So that's where I go with that. So so really you're 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 giving us a recipe for mindfulness and living in the moment because that's what you have in front of you. Yes, sir. And I think a lot of people and and, and this is really good for brain health in general is our ability to embrace and control what's in front of us as opposed to um, 
starting that fear-based, stressful anxiety of the what-ifs of life or when you get there. Uh, and so in terms of good brain health, yes, let's be in the moment because right now, um, in my field, you're in early Alzheimer's disease. Let's be there right now. Let's have this to be the best early Alzheimer's phase that you have and live in the moment and create these moments of joy so that we can have tremendous quality of life um, with an eye to the future, but living in the moment right now. Um, and I think there's that duality that has to play out, that you have to understand that no one's going to live forever, but you have the moments that you have right now. And, and you know, really getting our arms around what that looks like. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, we're lucky in a sense, being able to digitally document our experiences. Like we, we didn't used to get to do this years ago. And, and if there was a, a dementia or an Alzheimer's or some cognitive change, we, we weren't able to access some, some old memories as, as clearly as we can today. And so you know, we would see the changes occur. And then what was left at the end of life, that was kind of our last image of somebody. But we don't have that now. We, we can go back to any point in somebody's life of our loved one. If you have, you know, a, a, a phone that has a camera or you, you utilized the, the cameras, the video cameras back in the day. I mean, we have, we can access that. And so we keep people alive in the moment that we're used to seeing them. It's, it's, it's better now than ever before, but because we have those tools, we should be able to be more open with what death means and what life means and, and kind of that continuum of, of just from, from, from youth and vitality to old age and, and transitioning. That, that's, that's, that's awesome because we really then can keep their memory and legacy alive with all of these uh, modern advances that we have right now and, and can remember them in not just in the state of death, like you said, but really in the vitality of life. Right, exactly. So I know that cultural considerations are, are, are big because, um, you know, everybody comes from different backgrounds and different ethnicities and they have different views on death and dying and, and this process and different countries as well uh, around the world look at this um, summarily different than we do in the United States. Um, are there any countries that you know of that are doing a better job than we are here in the United States? That's a great question. I think that there are some European countries, the Scandinavian countries I have heard uh, are advanced in many ways um, in being kind of genuinely transparent with their, their healthcare system. And I, th I think we don't do a good job of that here. And I couldn't tell you, culturally speaking, who's better than, you know, the United States and in what rank, you know, we might be. I haven't done enough traveling to know. I haven't done enough research on other cultures to say, you know, this one is the, is the perfect uh, pinnacle of, of how to do something and the model of what we should be striving to. But I, I, think, you know, I think I know enough about our own cultures, our, our cultures within our culture. You know, there's the American culture, but we are kind of that melting pot of different cultures who, who look at death and dying in different ways. And uh, I was with uh, an Ethiopian group yesterday, um, a family that, you know, very tight knit, um, you know, going through the process of, 
of examining the the loss or the 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 upcoming loss of a of father, and um, you know that's it was really interesting to see their take on death and what they're currently doing culturally uh, for the to support them here in you know in Arizona. So um, you know I think I I think it's up to everybody within the healthcare system and beyond to just like we say all the time about respecting each other's cultures, each other's viewpoints. This is a very sensitive topic. And I think, you know, we've got to know enough about our, our own culture and the culture of somebody else's when we're sitting down with somebody to have that conversation uh, from a healthcare standpoint. Excellent. So in our closing moments here, can you um, give us a little bit of uh, a little tidbit um, that you want us to know about your your upcoming book um, in terms of just thematically and and uh, where you're going with that. Well, sure, it, it's got a lot of stories within you know my my experiences. So I think when you, when you look at a book that's that's examining death and dying, it's really easy to just not pick that one up. <laughs> like <laughs> now, I'm going to skip that and head over here to fiction section. You know, I, I, I do a lot of, um, you know, humor. I think that I weave through it, definitely stories of, of things that I've experienced or I've seen other people go through. And I think that that makes it real and it supports people where they are about what they are concerned about. But the most important piece is that this isn't just uh, um, an examination about where we are as a, as a community here in America about death and dying. It's not just that. And if it was, I wouldn't tell anybody to get it. But I think being able to, to go through activities and, and workbook type um, act, uh, programming where there are not just the questions, but the answers. And there's other, there's, there's people get the, the ability to utilize these workbooks to come up with their own solutions based on what I've, I've told them. Looking forward to uh, to being able to uh, get a copy of that book in my hands, and we will have you back on a future episode and and kind of unpeel that. So I would like to thank you to say thank you to our guest uh, Cameron Svensson for an engaging episode, and I'd also like to thank our sponsor Live Generation Senior Communities for their support as well. So this is Brian Brown from Brain Health 365 signing off. We encourage listener engagement and invite you to submit your brain health questions to us at questions at brainhealth365.com. During each episode, we will select and address submitted questions. If your question is chosen, you will receive a fantastic mug to enjoy your favorite hot brain healthy beverage. This episode's question comes to us from Sarah L. Brian, I listened to one of your previous podcasts and understand that exercising can make quite a difference in my brain health. I'm a bit overweight and wonder what exercises I could do that won't leave me injured or feeling discouraged. Thank you for the question, Sarah. That's a really popular question for people who want to maintain and achieve brain health. One of the easiest ways to start exercising is really following a lot of the research and advice from places like the Blue Zones, where functional movement is really at the core of all of our exercise. And all functional movement is, is finding ways to move our body 
specifically throughout the day. So for you, I would start off with walking, simply walking. Find a, a block of space where you just want to walk around on a regular basis when it's convenient for you. And then you want to change the route. Why do you want to change the route? Because one, you won't get bored. But secondly, there is brain stimulation that takes place every time we encounter things for the first time. So you want to change the route to be able to create some neuronal stimulation. And then you want to up your game by putting some hand weights while you walk, you know, maybe a couple pounds at first and then increase as you can tolerate it. And then you can move to upping your game by tackling stairs next, taking on an additional load through stairs. So there's a lot of ways that we can incorporate simple exercise through functional movement that doesn't require a gym membership. Thank you for the question. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast and thank you to our sponsors. Please visit our website, brainhealth365.com for more information or to become a sponsor. Feel free to follow us on socials and join the conversation. We look forward to welcoming you on our next episode Remember to subscribe to this podcast on the app of your choice.